Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Left Unread podcast. As always, I'm your uh, one of your hosts. <laughs> My name is Cameron, and this yeah. is your other host. I'm Evan. This his name's Evan. Yeah, <laughs> we're the two hosts of the Left Unread podcast. Now, if you haven't joined us before, uh, why are you starting on episode yeah, five <laughs> of a series? Silly. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so. <clears throat> I know that we've both been teasing for uh, <laughs> forever, like we do. Yeah. That we've got that we still write episodes, and we've still we've <laughs> still been reading books and doing research, and we do, folks. We do. Um, yeah. So this week we will be diving back into. Oh my God, my phone has been transcribing everything that we've said since the Skype call began. <laughs> Anyway, so I'm just trying to delete all that so I don't accidentally send you a 70,000 word text. Um, So, yeah, so we're back and we're going to be talking more about uh, about Genghis Khan and who now is officially Genghis Khan, if you guys remember. And uh, yeah, now that he's finished consolidating the tribes of of what we now refer to as the Mongolian steppe, uh, he's got some administrative work to do if he doesn't want to just be the same as every other conquering step warlord yep. which you know you haven't heard of any of them probably so that's probably a reason why um yeah, so yeah because because sometimes these episodes can go a little long we'll probably just dive right in and yep. uh what do you say we start the show let's start the show buddy okay begin begin and we sort of already mentioned this but just a reminder um this is part five in one of our ongoing series uh which we last visited in episode 91 of left unread which was the mongols part four genghis khan or chinggis khan um so it is part of an overarching narrative like all of our story all of our series episodes and we don't spend a ton of time on recap in these or at least i don't so if you haven't heard that episode um, or any of the parts preceding it um, please put this on pause go back listen right now because it's an awesome story i think and um probably my best received series um Mm -hmm. just like in terms of you know feedback i've gotten in person so i would appreciate if you guys were up to date you don't necessarily have to but i think you're probably not going to enjoy it as much if you don't feel a little investment in uh, especially our protagonist here yep um on that note for your convenience um at least if you're spotify listeners which we know a good chunk of you are uh we have created a playlist on that platform which we call lu series l is in 
the letter L and U is in the letter U, <laughs> uh, wherein all of our ongoing and completed series are compiled in order, um, both in sequential order, but then also roughly in order, series order, at least from when their first episodes started. Um, so, and any of our ongoing ones, I think we kind of just like shuffle like what's the most recent whenever we put out a new series episode. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, definitely go back and check that out, LU series, if you want to listen to this without having to shuffle back through your feed. Uh, and then also, concurrently, if you like any of the music that we use in the show, we have another playlist called LU Rippers. Um, so if you ever hear a tune and think to yourself, gosh, I wonder what that is, uh, there's like a 98% chance that it's in there, because Spotify <laughs> has almost everything that we've used. We put some weird deep cuts in here um, yeah. that aren't on there, but um, for the most part, you can find all of that there. Um, so yeah, with that out of the way, we're now going to put on our special patented, uh, LU time travel decoder rings, which you should have all received in the mail by now yep. and turn that dial to the 13th century. And we will now be heading back to the Mongolian steppe in the year 1206, where a Kurultai has just declared Temujin, who has been our protagonist of this series thus far, the great Genghis Khan, universal Khan, ruler of the universe and the steppe. And we're going to find out what he is going to do next. What will he do next, folks? Find Tune in out. next time on <laughs> yeah. Left Unread. Dude, yeah. <laughs> the episode format is now five minutes of just teasers. Yes. And uh, <laughs> that would actually be great because then we could claim that we put out a real history episode every week and stretch it out really forever. Yeah. yeah. We can release five-minute clips daily. Just like aggressive cliffhangers. <laughs> um, we're recording in the morning today, folks, so if my voice sounds fucked up or if we sound tired... I mean, it's not, like, the morning for everyone, but I think it's the morning for... It's the morning for Evan and I on a day off, for sure. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> which is unusual for us, so... But we're gonna, we're gonna find it. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get the energy pumping, the blood flowing. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna get our dicks hard, and we're gonna get ready to party for you, yeah. so... Shotgun some bang energy drinks. <laughs> yeah, dude. Fucking. We're gonna shotgun a couple of bangs and... Yeah. We'll see where it goes from there. Yeah. Um, so first off, uh, a little bit of a continuity note. Up until this point, we've generally referred to the protagonist of this story as Temujin, because that is his name. That's what his mama called him, um, or his daddy, probably more realistically. Um, however, at this point, we're going to mostly begin referring to him as Genghis Khan, or you'll, I'll say Genghis Khan, too, because that's like the common American pronunciation. I try to be more proper with it, but, you know, either one, I, I will say both. I don't claim to be, you know, the best at that. Um, <clears throat> just like I'll say Caesar, I'll say Kaisar, you know. Yeah. Uh, but so that is how he's mainly known to posterity, and it makes the most sense for the narrative. Sort of like how, you know, when you're talking about Roman history, you'll refer to Octavian prior to his ascension to the throne, and then he becomes Augustus once he becomes Augustus. Sort of the same deal here. Um, so he's he's earned the title. He is now the Genghis Khan. But just keep in mind, it's still Temujin. It's still the same guy. Uh, we've been talking about this whole time. Genghis Khan is his title, but sort of functions like a name and that's how pretty much everyone's going to refer to him both contemporaneously you wouldn't call him you wouldn't call him temujin unless you were like his yeah. his brother and even then <clears throat> as we'll see in this story that's not really like a guarantee that you guys are on good terms so yeah. <laughs> um yeah call him by his name uh so let's talk about let's talk about some laws we're going to spend most of this episode talking about the legal reforms that were necessary post you know, all of the chaos and fighting and whatever of the last, you know, 
realistically the last like 30 years of this dude's life. He's now in his like late thirties, early forties. Um, and yeah, so he's, he's done it. Uh, Genghis Khan has defeated his rivals on the Mongolian steppe and through a stunning combination of bravado, brilliance and battlefield might, I was really proud of that alliteration. Uh, <laughs> he has successfully consolidated all of the various tribes and confederacies, or at least all the ones that matter under his singular rule. So he's not the first Khan to have accomplished such a feat, uh, but he is likely the one that you've heard of, uh, unless, of course, we're talking about, you know, Ricardo Montalban's Khan. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive, buried alive. Come! Uh, that might be yeah. That might be the con that, that you know most. You, you might know and that is dearest con. to your heart. Yeah. Hopefully but, not Benedict Cumberbatch's con. No, no. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch's come. <laughs> uh, so he's not the yep. first guy to do it, but he is definitely the latest and and certainly the greatest uh, because he's really he's built different. He's not like the other cons. He does not just want to sit on his laurels now that he's the sort of great con of the step and get fat and rich and then die and sort of just let everything fall apart again and let his son squabble over, you know, the scraps of his, his, you know, we're going to start calling it an empire, but let's be real. This is really just at this point, basically just the, the Mongolian step, which roughly can correspond to like, if you look at uh, on a modern map, the, the nation of Mongolia and the province of um, Inner Mongolia, which is a northern Chinese province. Yeah. Um, that's roughly the area that we're talking about here. Um, a little bit up into Siberia, closer to the Korean Peninsula, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, that's you know, just for a quick glance, that's basically what we're talking about. So not a small area, but also, like, not a, a massively densely populated area either. Yeah. Um, so we're going to call it his empire because it has been a domain built through conquest and will expand and by all accounts, be a true empire by the time Genghis Khan kicks the bucket. Um, you know, right now in 1206, it's still relatively modest. No cities. It's all tents. It's all animals. It's all yep. horse warriors. Um, he didn't want his people, the people of the Ger, as he calls them, which is the confederacy of the, the Mongols, the Naimans, and, and, and all of those others, um, the Tatars. Uh, to continue to subsist on the leavings and scraps of the great powers to the south, uh, i.e. Um, the Chinese, the Han Chinese, and uh, the, the, the great Jin, who are, um, who are uh, a steppe empire that has settled and become sedentary and adopted much of the Chinese ways. Uh, so he wants to be a great power. He doesn't want to get played by the great power. He wants yep. to be the player. And so he figures, heck, you know, we've united all the steppe peoples. That was fun. And frankly, kind of easy. Uh, because, you know, if, if Genghis Khan, as we've said, was a character in Crusader Kings, his stats would be off the fucking chain. This guy would yep. be an absolute beast. And I think he is in CK2. He's not in CK3 yet. So yeah, he would be an absolute fucking monster. Uh, he's good at all of it, folks. Uh, but he knows that before he can get to more conquering and expansion of his empire... He has to set a few things straight on the home front uh, to ensure that his authority has some sort of legal basis and that as his empire grows, it doesn't just collapse under its own weight, which has a tendency to happen with these sort of short-lived 
steppe confederacies. He needs laws, but not just any laws. He needs the great law. The great yep. law of Genghis Khan. He needs God's law, man's <laughs> law, Seth's law. <laughs> um, so the establishment of Genghis Khan's new government was particularly interesting because of the relative lack of framework that he had to be to, to work with during its early years. We've talked a great deal about the various conventions of step life up until this point, and hopefully at no point have you guys come away with the impression that we're talking about an area that is like riddled with laws and government oversight to provide structure to the whole thing. It's it's I, I believe I believe the picture painted has been quite the opposite. Yeah, it's 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 to call it like the Wild West is not doing it justice because the Wild West would have seemed extremely unwild. Uh, the step. Yeah. In the 13th century, and <laughs> when the story started in the in the 12th century, um, is is bonkers, and it's basically just like an endless cycle of of, of violence um, of both a physical and a sexual nature, and uh, it's a it's a tough place to live, and the people that are from there, as a direct result, are like the toughest motherfuckers on earth. One of the major inspirations, maybe not stylistically and culturally, but in terms of Frank Herbert's like great theory of like you know, diamonds being created under pressure, like the, the, the Sour Dakar and the, and the Fremen. Um, the Mongols are like a clear example of that. Just like a people who existed under such environmental pressures that the resultant, uh, uh, civilization was just like a brutally effective warrior culture. Yep. And it's been sort of just an anything goes vibe there in the steppe. Um, which is great if all you care about is, like, leading a marauding band of horse raiders or, like, kidnapping yep. women and making them marry you. Um, and if that's what you're into, then this would be your favorite place of all time because those are, like, the main pastimes. Yep. Uh, however, it's not great if you're somebody like Genghis Khan who doesn't like those things, has had some real uh, past experiences with the negative side of those, those ways of life, and you're looking yep. to sort of establish a new order or forge any kind of lasting legacy for yourself. Um, so you might even say that our entire narrative up until this point, and by obvious extension, the narrative of the Mongol secret history, upon which we're basing most of our narrative structure here, yeah. has existed to supply that sort of framework uh, for the major changes that the, that the Khan is about to make. And we've talked before about how the, the secret history of the Mongols is certainly a propaganda piece um and that's not to say that you can't believe any of it but the structure of it's really important and we're going to make specific reference to certain beat points in that story in that narrative um yep. because the secret history now starts to draw these really obvious lines of connection like remember when this happened to temujin well that is why the great khan has made this law um and so theoretically at least all of that's going to come into play now with the the way that the legal system has developed so Jack Weatherford, who wrote one of the main books that I'm using, in addition to looking at secret history stuff and then a couple other books that I'm reading, um, which I guess I'll just note here, um, I'm also using, in a supplementary uh, supplementary fashion, um, Genghis Khan, His Conquests, His Empire, and His Legacy by Frank McLinn, and Genghis Khan by John, not John Mayer, <laughs> oh. John, John Mann. Um, so those are just a couple of the other books that I've used and then, you know, some online essays and sources and stuff. But that's the primary bibliography. Um, but Genghis Khan and the Making of the Modern World by Jack Weatherford is probably the most readable um, and also uses the secret history as a direct primary source 
in a way that I find to be the most compelling. So if you're looking for just like a book to read about all of this to kind of either follow along or just get your own sort of sense, that's what I'm using to sort of structure my narrative a lot. Um, and so I definitely recommend that. Uh, so Jack Weatherford, who wrote that book, uh, notes, and I'm inclined to agree, that the obvious place for Genghis Khan to begin the forging of his new administration was with the army that brought him to power in the first place. Um, that's a really common thread when you're looking at nation building. The army is a really good place to start, or whatever you're calling the military force that has brought you to power, which is usually how somebody gains power. Yep. So we talked last installment about the reorganization of the entire army into groups based on multiples of 10, with the smallest unit being 10, 10 guys and then their families and whatever, and the highest unit being a Tumen, um, which is the main structure we're going to talk about today. So you don't have to remember all the names that we talked about last <coughs> time, but a Tumen is 10,000 fighting men and then their families and animals. And it's like a moving village slash army of 10,000 people. Uh, yep. 10,000 men and then all the surrounding people around them. So as much as 40,000 people, you know, following a Tumen. Um, and so when we talk about armies within Genghis Khan's army, that's generally what we're referring to. Um, a Tumen maxed out at around 10,000. Didn't have to be 10,000. There are people that, that, you know, and we'll see this in a moment, that were given Tumens, and they were called Tumens, um, of 5,000, 6,000, 7,000. Um, not at full strength. But the technical size of a Tumen is 10,000 10, men. Yeah. No matter what, though, a two men was more than two men. Yes. There was never <laughs> just two men and a two men. Yeah. So these units were structured <laughs> like families, and they, they were intentionally designed. We talked about this last episode. Go listen to it. Um, last episode in this series. Uh, to cut across ethnic and religious lines and become the absolute center of Mongol life. And this was the structure that Genghis Khan sought to expand upon and really integrate into his new society. So the two men were generally led by men that the Khan had found to be most capable and loyal, regardless of their lineage or personal relationship to him, often specifically, you know, promoting men who were not close to him, not related to him, who were people that had proven their worth in, in battle, in, you know, just personal service to the Khan. So even a lowly black-boned goat herder, and this will happen, uh, could rise to become a mighty general at the head of a two men under this new order. And that's not to say that he didn't reward his family as well, uh, but he, he never favored them outright and in many cases would actively take the side of, of other parties uh, almost without fail against his own family members. He had a deep-seated sort of distrust of the motivations of, of definitely his brothers, um, which is you know based on his history, but also yeah. on his sons. Uh, for example, do you remember Burchu, who's the guy who uh, yeah, last time he... He sucked Temujin's blood all night after he yeah. got wounded, and then he had to get naked and steal the, the barrel of Irag from the enemy camp when they were fighting the Taichiuds back on the Onon River. Yeah, we love Borchu, don't yeah, we, folks? Borchu's, Borchu's a fucking... He's, he's our guy. He's a real mensch. <coughs> so he, he gets a full two men, 10,000 men. He's a big shot, and he's going to be one of the leading generals over the next you know period of uh, conquest for the Khan. Um, and that dude literally started as nothing. And now is going to be one of like the m biggest movers and shakers in the greatest you know overland conquest of all time. Uh, in contrast, the Khan's own sons only got between five and nine thousand men apiece, and a lot of them were appointed uh, loyal advisors. Really, they're sort of overseers uh, to sort of watch how they administer and and gently redirect at the Khan's behest. Um, and he didn't do that with people like Borchu. Borchu's really yeah. truly in charge on his own 
semi-autonomous because he knows I can trust this guy. He sucked my blood, dude. Yeah. He brought me IRAG when I was dying. Yep. My sons, I don't know. They ain't shit. Uh, yeah, a good example. Sons are bitches. <laughs> a good example from um, The Secret History and, and quoted in Weatherford, uh, the Khan's second son, Chagatai, um, for example, according to, to the Khan himself, was, quote, obstinate and uh, had a petty, narrow mind and was to be watched basically constantly and carefully at all times. So this dude had, he was nominally <laughs> he in had charge. Zero, of, he had zero uh, conviction in Chagatai. Yeah, yeah. And you, you can look Chagatai up. He's going to come back in the story. But also, like, remember this. The Khan is very well aware that, like, just because they're his kids and they grew up and he tried to kind of mold them, he was busy with other stuff, and he knows he didn't necessarily make, like, all the right calls and that these kids aren't, like, yeah. guaranteed to be awesome. So he wants them to do well. He wants to set them up for success, but he also wants to make sure that they know and everybody else knows. It's like, you don't – you're not just automatic – you're not – you ain't yeah. me, all right? You don't wear <laughs> you don't wear the daddy pants, okay? Yeah. You're just some guy, and you're yeah. lucky that I'm your dad. Here's 9,000 men. Do whatever this fucking guy says, because <laughs> if you don't, I'm going to hear about it. Yeah. Um, so the cons, uh, we just said that, <laughs> yeah. uh, so right off the bat, Genghis is doing things right. He's not falling for that old trap of just letting your sons do whatever they want. Will that be enough? Who's to say we'll get there eventually, but at least during his lifetime, the effort is there to keep his Borjigan dynasty in check. So the Khan knew that one of the main hurdles to properly administering his domain was the constant fighting and feuding among groups on the steppe. So whether it's a small-scale family squabble over some stolen livestock or a massive tribal war uh, for riches and booty and slaves and whatever, we've seen that violence was always just sort of like right there uh, waiting to reveal itself in steppe life. It's, it's always just a quick decision or an argument away. And this couldn't fly if things were going to stabilize. So the Khan is going to seek to eradicate the roots of all this violence. So he starts by basing his great law not on religious authority, like a lot of other temporal leaders, or on yep. the law codes of his sedentary neighbors. So he didn't look and say, well, here's how the Chinese do it. Because he's also thinking to himself, you know, fuck the Chinese. Those are lady boys. I'm going to go down there and fuck them up in a minute. <sighs> yep. But on the ancient and prevailing traditions and customs already in place in the steppe. He believed that for a law to properly govern a people, it should be based on their own traditions. It should be easy for them to understand, to accept, and to adapt. Yeah. Also, the great law is, is always treated like sort of an overarching supplement to existing local laws, which are allowed to persist, not just on the steppe, but in every place that the Khan will conquer, uh, so long as they do not directly contradict the great law, which always supersedes local law. But you'll see, it's not designed to replace every little you know nuance of the way local life is governed or or local traditions um it deals with the big major problems that are going to crop up uh it's also never strictly codified it's always flexible to amendment as necessary um and this flexibility fits the model of step life which really is just about adapting to the needs of your your current situation and it's going to allow the great law to be consistently improved upon um, whenever necessary. So exhibit A of a problem here that's facing society, according to Genghis Khan, uh, is the kidnapping of women. And I think yep. Evan and I would agree. Not the yep. chillest. Yeah, not, not really pro that. Yeah, we don't love it. Convince them, you know? Yeah. Say, hey, would you like to come back to my gur? <laughs> <laughs> no? Okay, no problem. 
Can't throw her in a cart. Plenty, plenty of other, uh, plenty of other yurts with plenty of other ladies. Yep. I'll yep. See you next time. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Keep the yogurt. That's on me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the con had uh, experience with this. His own mother, obviously, and his wife were both victims of kidnapping, and he knew that it's a major source of conflict on the step. I mean, hell, he went in and fucking the whole reason that he became or started down the trail to become what he's become now is because his wife. Borte got kidnapped, and it was time to you know step up and become a fighter, become a man. Uh, so he wants that to end. So therefore, mm-hmm. kidnapping women straight to jail, and by jail straight I mean jail. execution. Yeah. Uh, there's not a lot of permanent <laughs> imprisonment in Steph Leip's Steph Leip's yeah. step lifestyle. Uh, yeah. When you not live a lot in tents, of permanent and, buildings. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like they're not going to build a jail when you live in 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 tents and you're constantly traveling with the seasons and with the herds um you know look you might be temporarily detained or or punished or whatever but they know that it's not practical to hold on to somebody so it's like look shit or get off the pot are we gonna fucking yeah. kill this guy or not yeah and so yeah a lot of the punishments for these serious crimes are capital punishments and that's sort of the the the, the way to think about the great law it's not dealing with the small petty stuff like if you have a small squabble with your local neighbor over something like he expects you to figure it out and he expects the leader of your two men to figure it out right this stuff only comes into play if those those issues really cannot be resolved if there's if there's going to be a blood feud if there's going to be a a war if there's going to be a rebellion the law will step in and say all right uh everybody involved dead problem solved move on yeah so yeah capital punishment it's big it's big with the mongols they believe in it <clears throat> yep, they probably spank their kids. They pro- yeah, they probably they probably do a little spank. These kids probably get probably get hit for sure. Oh, you know, uh, so so brief aside here about yeah. that. A uh, very funny. Uh, I was hanging out with a buddy this weekend, and we watched this movie, Class of 1999, mm-hmm. which is basically RoboCop meets like The Terminator meets Escape from New York, <laughs> but like bad. And sure. Th- uh, so it involves uh, like high schools are like hyper militarized, and so they basically bring in the RoboCops but teacher versions. Okay. And uh, and one of the scenes, this cop just like grabs two students, or not cop, but the teacher grab like you know, uh, like a cyborg teacher grabs two students and just starts smacking the shit out of their asses. <laughs> it was so fucking stupid. Highly recommend the movie. Oh it was God. absolutely insane. But yeah, so you know. That's probably what the the uh, the um, the Mongols were doing here, you know. Class of nineteen ninety nine, the ultimate yeah. teaching machine out of control. Yeah. Who's in it? Anybody I've heard of? No, no, no. Oh, Pam Greer. I've heard of Pam Greer. Yeah, Pam Greer's in it. Uh, Rose McGowan has an uncredited role in it. Malcolm McDowell, Stacy Keach. Yeah, Malcolm okay. McDowell. Gotcha. All right. But the thing, Malcolm McDowell's like barely even in the movie. Pam yeah. Greer is one of the uh, the teachers. Oh, okay. The, the she could spank teacher. me, dude. Yeah. Pam Greer yeah, could, could tan my hide. Yeah, yeah, I would be okay with this. <laughs> no, no issues there. Get the 
So another thing, another new law. No more yep. enslavement of fellow Mongols, which at this point is starting to expand to mean people in this original confederacy, um, not just actual Mongols. So that's where things get like a little a little shaky, but whatever. So the yep. secret history makes a big to-do about the Khan's compassion after being rescued by slaves while a teenage prisoner of the Taichi. You remember this? You heard about this? Mm -hmm. Have you seen this? Have you heard about this? <laughs> You guys seen this? You guys heard about this? Remember that time when uh, King's Khan, you know, he was uh, held captive. I mean, the slaves, they helped him out. It was nice. It was great. Uh, but truthfully, it just makes sense that if you want to build uh, a new ties among your massive tribal confederacy, they can't still be, like, actively raiding and enslaving each other. They can have slaves yeah. still. So I don't want you guys to think that this was too forward-thinking. Slavery yeah. itself is not outlawed. But yeah. you can't enslave from within this group. Yeah. Okay. You enslave from without. You can enslave uh, foreigners still, you know. Yeah. And in fact, you probably should, you know, yeah. according to according to the Mongols. But no more uh, enslavement of one another. Yes. He also Correct. declared that all children uh, are now legitimate, regardless of who their uh, their mother was. Um, yeah. Whether it was a wife or a concubine. Uh, I'll, I'll elaborate on this in a second. But this was in an effort yep. to prevent sons from squabbling over rights. You remember yes. what happened with uh, Temujin's older half-brother, Begter? Yep. He was starting to say, like, hey, I might, you know, I might fuck your mom. And so Genghis mm -hmm. Khan was like, yeah, I'm going to shoot you. I'm going to kill you. Yeah, and he did it. Dead. You are now dead, sir. Yeah, he was about that life. Temujin mm -hmm. don't fuck around. He don't play that. Uh, so it doesn't solve problems like the question of the Khan himself's eldest son, Jochi, who, yeah. as you might recall, was potentially the the child of a Tatar uh, man who had captur captured Borte, um, yeah. who was gone for, you know, just the right amount of time to maybe have been impregnated during her captivity. Um, so it doesn't solve issues like that. But as long as, you know, you know that a child is like a man's son with a particular woman, that child's legitimate, regardless of whether yeah. it was his official wife or a servant or whatever. Um, so similarly, he outlaws adultery. But I don't want you fuck freaks out there to panic, okay? Because the Mongols are still chill, and, and Mongol adultery works a little different from how we would probably yeah. define adultery. Okay. Um, I mean, we would probably look at adultery as fucking anyone other than your spouse or your partner, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. Right. Well, in, in, in Mongol society at this time, say you're a lady and you're married to a man. You can't go and fuck your neighbor unless your neighbor is your husband's brother. You can fuck him. Or if it's like his son from a different marriage uh, or it's a close cousin, somebody in the family group, another man in the family group that you're not directly blood related to, you can have sex with him. What? Uh, similarly, if you're a, a guy, you can have sex with your brother's wives. You can have sex with your servants. Anyone in your household, uh, you're not supposed to have sex with your daughter. Okay. No, that's never that's never good. Incests is explicitly yeah. frowned upon, but you know that does obviously get sticky. These clan family relationships can get a little weird. So there are definitely some scenarios that to us the would family feel family trees are a little intertwined. They're vines. Maybe. Yeah, they're yeah. like they're they're very they're all over the place. But uh, no explicit like like like. Level one incest, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, cousins, you know, things get a little weird. But it's that's yeah. been true in human history for a long time. So I guess whatever. It is what it is. Yeah. Uh, but so Genghis Khan had, like, a, a general maxim here. And this isn't necessarily a quote, but it's just a good way to describe the way the law works. Let problems of the gear be solved in the gear, and problems of the step be solved out on the step. So, like, 
he wants Render unto the gear that which is the gears. Yeah, <laughs> unto the step that which is the step. Sure. So like, <laughs> y- you should be able to keep your own family shit in line, and as long as it's not going to cause like murder to break out. Yeah. You know, <clears throat> if everybody in the in in it, in the ish, in the situation is okay with it, then it's yeah. the law doesn't care. They're not here to like regulate who you can fuck, as long as there's no like static over it. Yeah. And truthfully, like outside of these scenarios. It's not like he's saying, like, you know, if we catch you committing adultery, it's going to be a problem. Like, if your husband doesn't give a shit and doesn't raise a stink about it if you fuck other yeah. men, then no one cares. Yeah. It, the problem here is, like, if he decides to raise a, an issue and he can prove that you were having sex with someone you, you know, quote-unquote shouldn't have been, yeah. then you could be punished. And vice yeah. versa for a man. Uh, the con wasn't just interested in family law, though. He also knew that he had to codify all sorts of other things if he wanted stability on the step. Yep. Uh, a big one is animal rustling. No more stealing of livestock. Straight to death. Yeah, it, immediate. Execute, yeah. It's an executable offense. Yeah. Also, and this is going to end up being kind of a cool feature of the Mongol Empire as it expands. If you find stolen animals or goods and know, know that they're not yours um, and you do not report them or at least attempt to return them if able, you yourself are also Believe considered... Straight to death. Straight to death. You can be yeah. considered the thief yourself and will be punished. Yeah. Uh, so this ends up creating a really cool, like, empire-wide lost and found system for the returning of goods uh, and animals and whatever. The Pax Mongolica will end up being a real thing um, because their their empire is going to sort of directly correspond to some of the main Silk Road routes from Asia into Europe. And they are going to massively pacify what has historically been, like, one of the most treacherous overland routes on Earth um, just by virtue of the fact that, like, everyone fears the Khan's justice. And yeah. they take this shit really seriously. The Mongols will literally start wars over breaches of this law code. Um, and that w- we will see examples of that in later episodes. Um, but an unwillingness to follow the law, like, they, they don't... This isn't just, like, words on a page. This is, like... Hey man, please follow these rules, or we will mm-hmm. bring the full weight of our empire down upon you and massacre every single person we have to until you're subdued. Yeah. Um, and at least for a little while, that stays the case, and it's it's pretty impressive. He also regulates hunting uh, and establishes a hunting season. So there is no hunting in the spring and early summer when animals are breeding and they're raising their young. That is now totally outlawed. You have to eat your livestock or trade for food. And then that, therefore, increases the availability of food in the winter. So he's trying to create food stability among the people in a traditionally unfood stable part of the world. Um, this is maybe not a global first, but it's kind of unique in that he's not, you know, a lot of hunting rights and hunting seasons in other parts of, like, the medieval world are more like nobles denying access to hunting to commoners. Um, and that's not at all the case here. This is just about, like, we got to make sure that there's enough food for everybody. So, like, do things yep. right. Uh, this next one is likely a global first, which is pretty pretty wild and unique. The Khan grants total religious freedom, like, absolute total religious amnesty to every single person in his realm. Buddhists and Manichaeans, Tengrists and Muslims, um, obviously Christians, uh, Jews. All of these people exist on the steppe. It's actually, like, a fairly religiously diverse place. We've been talking about how mm-hmm. kind of barren it is, but there are lots of different religions among the Mongols and their their related groups. Um, mm-hmm. They all have equal right to practice their faith under the great law and equal protections, uh, and none of them have favor in the eye of the Khan. He is himself an animist. He's a, ten- he's, he's a Tengrist. He believes in the endless blue sky. He will always be a Tengrist. He will never spend a night 
inside a city in his entire life. Uh, mm-hmm. He's the fucking balls. He's the best. But yeah. he doesn't make that the state religion. He doesn't believe in that. He's like, you know what? Fuck it. It doesn't really matter. And yeah. he keeps religious advisors of other faiths around him. Um, the Mongol rulers will become famous for kind of spiritual insurance policies. They kind of yeah. do whatever they can to make sure that whoever's right, they're on their good side. And yeah. so it's it's very practical. It keeps everyone happy. There's not a lot of religious conflict. But also, it keeps, uh, at least for a little while, it keeps leaders of organized religions from getting their greasy little their greasy little claws into the ruling class and kind of influencing affairs of state and we will end this episode with an example of someone who tried to do that to genghis khan um it doesn't go well preface uh but yeah no no supremacy among the religions um He also, he exempts religious leaders, and this is the first of these type of tax exemptions. He exempts religious leaders like imams, priests, rabbis, etc., shamans, from paying taxes. They also do not have to serve in the military. They can. They're not, they're not excluded, but they are exempt from service if they choose. But yeah, so he will later extend these tax exemptions to, to a lot of different groups that perform, you know, what are deemed to be necessary jobs uh, in the empire. So scholars, teachers, um, undertakers... Uh, all of these people are doing jobs that are necessary and shouldn't be interrupted by, you know, having to saddle up and go off on campaign. Um, yeah. So it's an incentive to perform duties other than horse archer in Mongol horde, which is like far and away the most popular job. Because yeah. <laughs> um, every man over the age of, I think, 15 is is automatically considered a member of the army um, yeah. unless otherwise exempted. Also, if you're like infirm or unwell, the not that they were being progressive, but just like they don't necessarily want you in the army. So you also are exempt, uh, but not in, in an honorable way. They're not super cool about that. So a central tenet of the great law was its emphasis on the group over the individual. Uh, the idea of group guilt is, is, is huge uh, in, yep. in the Mongol world. So um, remember, society is now officially grouped in tens. Uh, and so yeah. if one member of your unit commits a crime... It is the responsibility and the shame of every member of that group until it is set right. So this promotes behavior correction on a, on a, on a micro scale um, and also then stabilizes larger communities around a collective sense of duty to the law. So, you know, say you're in your little group of 10. These are your, yeah. your sworn brothers, basically. And one of them steals a goat. Well, until he's brought to justice, every single member of that unit can be charged as a thief. And that incentivizes those other nine guys to be like, yo, what the fuck? Return the goat. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure there were some some beatings and some, you know, aggressive examples of of frontier justice here. Yeah. And so it's, you know, maybe not the most elegant solution to the problem, but it is effective. Um, And it does, you know, ensure that, you know, things stabilize pretty fucking quickly. Uh, And then there's also... Another place where the Khan really sets himself apart from a lot of his contemporaries, he himself was subject to his own law. And by all, yep. all accounts, he, he was fairly staunchly committed to this principle of no one, not even the Khan, being truly above the law. So he obviously is the one from whom the law springs. He, he creates the law. But once it's in effect, unless it's been altered by um, himself or by a, a gathering of a Kurultai, he is subject to that law. And he doesn't change the laws arbitrarily. He puts them in place because he believes that they are there for a reason. 
and he sticks yeah. to his own his own principles. Um, and that's in and of itself just a really great way for any leader to establish loyalty among his followers. And it works. Yeah. People fucking eat this shit up. They love it because they see that he is truly an honest leader. We've talked in the past about, you know, the way that he changed the divvying up of spoils of war. No longer were you just responsible for your own, you know, cash grab whenever you conquer an enemy. Uh, yep. Every single piece of booty that's looted is distributed evenly, is, is, is collected together and then redistributed based on your contribution, your rank, etc. And the Khan is really serious about this. He's very fair and he, you know, if you do right by him, he will always do right by you. And he always follows his own law. He never does anything that he would execute someone else for. At least that we know of. So as part of this, he also declares that no Khan can declare himself Khan without election by a Kurultai. So not quite a democratic process, but pretty good, honestly, for this time. Um, a Kurultai, of course, being a, a, a giant step meeting of local rulers, uh, where your presence was considered an affirmative vote and your absence was considered a vote in the negative. Um, from now on, you cannot become Khan without a majority Kurultai electing you. Uh, similarly, none of his own dynasty can be executed except by the decisions of a cruel tie. Now, this at first might just seem like he's trying to like protect his sons, but really, it's more to protect the realm from his sons. Uh, in that, the last thing that he wants after he dies is for all of his sons to just like go to war with each other and start killing each other off and create instability and divide up the empire among themselves. So, one of them will be declared Khan by the cruel tie, and then they cannot just start murdering their brothers unless they have actually committed a crime, and a cruel tie deems that they are deserving of death. Now, there's room for abuse there, but it's it's a pretty good start. Eventually, yeah. down the road, like within like 50 years of him dying, uh, his sons are going to like get rid of that last part. <laughs> like yeah. they're gonna, they're gonna drop the like the cons being above, uh, not being above the law thing. Um, yeah. But at least during his lifetime, like that is that stays a thing. And you know, he's like forty right now. He's got a, a few good years left in him. There's gonna be at least one more episode of, of Genghis Khan, if not two, to keep that in perspective. And the, yeah. my assumption is that the Mongol series will go to about nine or ten episodes. So yeah. he's gonna be the main character for at least the first half, if not a little more. <clears throat> so you know, there's some good years left. So if it's starting to seem like Genghis Khan really did create a government out of thin air, he did. And that's sort of why he's considered the greatest ever. He he didn't have the starting point that say, you know, to mention Augustus again. Augustus reformed the Roman state, right? And he did a lot of good. And he did a lot of crazy violent things as well. But the fact remains that that state existed in some capacity before he came along. So it's not like he had to literally invent Rome. Genghis yeah. Khan did that single-handedly he united the tribes and then said yeah we are this we're we're a nation now and here yeah. are our laws and it, basically from the ground up he did all that kind of single-handedly and it's pretty amazing uh a, another good example of that up until now there just wasn't a way to write the mongol language or at least not a uniform established way very few mongols if any were literate it's actually considered that up until this point not a single mongol had ever learned to read or write that's uh -huh. like the official narrative um who's to say but um and the khan himself almost certainly could not uh or at least up until this point never bothered to try to learn and it's not like they didn't know about writing like i said there were lots of religious leaders that had made their way out to the steppe but they were literate um there were members among the naimans and the taichiuds who were literate 
it just didn't really have much of a place in Mongol society prior to the formation of like a functioning state bureaucracy. There wasn't really a need for it. Life was yep. a little too fast and fucking crazy to have time for like <clears throat> reading books. Um, but now it does seem prudent for there to be a Mongol script. So apparently after conquering the Naiman tribe under Tayang Khan, uh, a couple years prior, Temujin uh -huh. had seen that the Khan kept a scribe with him who recorded all of his Khanli deeds and decrees. Uh, yeah. And that seems, that makes sense. Could be the move. Yeah, Genghis Khan likes that. So this scribe was a Uyghur, uh, who are in another ex existing uh, ethnic group. Um, yeah. They live in modern Xinjiang province in western China. And at this point had moved down to that area in the ninth century um but their people had originated on the same step as the mongols and so their language despite you know centuries of separation was still actually fairly mutually intelligible and so their script was relatively easy to adapt to the mongol language um so he had used his own uyghur script uh which is itself a der derivation of the syriac script which was brought to the area by christian monks you know in the seventh and eighth centuries uh to write you know laws and shit for tayang khan so the language is letter-based, but it's written from top to bottom like Chinese script. And it's actually, it's beautiful. If you look up Uyghur script or Mongol script, um, it's really nice. You should, you should Google it. Modern Mongolian is written in the Cyrillic alphabet, which, you know, whatever, that's fine. Lots of countries use that. Ugh. But the Uyghur script was chef's kiss. Beautiful. Yeah. Love it. And I wish that they would just readopt it. But, you know, who, who am I to say? I, I don't know. Uh, so he adopted his, his adopted brother. A guy named Shigi Kutuku, another yeah. excellent step name alert. Okay, yeah. these people really don't fuck around. They know how to name a kid. Shigi Kutuku. Yeah, dude. So Shigi Kutuku, who's, if you remember, I mentioned uh, a little Tatar boy um, that the Khan had found when he had, he had defeated the Tatars. And he was wearing, like, golden earrings. And he was like, God, this kid's so rich. And he gave him to his mother, uh, Holun, to raise as his adopted brother. That became his move. Whenever they would conquer a new tribe, he would have a woman in his family adopt children from that tribe to symbolize yeah. that he was absorbing that tribe into his own family. Yeah. Um, so this is his little adopted brother who, you know, is probably like 20 at this point. Um, <clears throat> he becomes the chief judge and the codifier of the great law. And the law is to be written on pure white paper and bound in blue books to resemble the eternal blue sky. And so he's actually having these laws put to paper, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, here's another... Genghis Khan lick that I just absolutely fangirl over because I think it's super clever. So traditionally, hostage taking was big on the step, right? Um, yep. So when he took Shigi Kutuku as his stepbrother, for example, that's sort of just, he's really just saying, hey, look, like, I've got all these Tatar kids in my family, could kill them if I wanted to. But he understands that it, it probably makes more sense not to do things in quite such an on-the-nose barbaric way. He yep. takes that, that original idea of hostage-taking and really adapts it to his new uh, stability-ensuring policy. So every leader of a group of 1,000 and a group of 10,000, so two men's, and I forget what the groups of 1,000 are called, forgive me, um, they each have to send one of their own sons and that son's best friend to the Khan himself, technically as hostages. However, their lives are not threatened. Instead... These sons are used to create the Khan's own personal two men of 10,000 men. They're given elite military and administrative training, and they're divided into the Khan's day guard and his night guard, who keep mm -hmm. constant watch over the Khan. I think the day guard is 9,000 men, or I'm sorry, uh, 
how does this work out? I think the day guard, the night guard is slightly larger than the day guard. Um, They keep constant watch over the con. They also perform, they also uh, uh, become his personal army. Um, And they keep his immediate surroundings in court functioning. They uphold the law, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Also, the con makes it known that one of the main purposes for their extensive training, the reason that he basically gives these kids like the Mongol equivalent of of a master's degree. Yeah is that he's keeping them in reserve as potential replacements for leaders of other units who fail to execute their duty. So the threat of replacement was probably at least as effective, if not a more effective tool for control than the threat of violence. So instead of saying, give me your son and his, his best little homie, uh, and I'll yep. kill them if you don't do what he says, do, do what I say, he's saying, give me your, your son and his best little homie, and I'm going to make sure that they are ready and willing to take your job if you can't do it. You know what I mean? Um... And granted, if you get your job taken, there's a chance you might get axed yourself, like literally, yeah. which is not good. But um, getting demoted in in the Mongol army was probably not like a, a great thing for your life if you lived. Yeah. And also, I just think that the best friend thing was kind of genius. Like yeah. keeping the kids happy also promotes brotherhood and loyalty among the ranks. So rather than just putting a bunch of strangers together, he's like, "Don't worry. Like we're gonna take your son. He can bring a pal." Yeah, <laughs> and like I don't know I just think he just doesn't miss a lot of these ideas are super clever super you know seem relatively simple but we're very effective and he he built intense societal cohesion in a very short period of time with people who like within their own lifetimes were literally like sworn mortal enemies against one another you yeah. know and he was just that magnetic yep Oh, and get this, if you were a member of the Khan's own Tumen, you automatically gained the rank of Elder Brother over the men in every other Tumen in the army. Uh, and so you could issue orders to them as if you were their Elder Brother. So individuals in the Mongol army did not hold rank, units did. Uh, and so the Khan's personal army outranked every other army in his horde, giant army. The big army, yeah, yeah. the main, full, whatever. Yep. Uh, <clears throat> so another thing I wanted to talk about here. I've mentioned before that every able-bodied Mongol man was almost automatically part of the military. Uh, Military duty was synonymous in most regards with manhood itself. So obviously religious leaders, lawyers, doctors, etc. were exempt. Uh, They're not disqualified. You can participate if you'd like, but you do not have to. But another important group that existed sort of simultaneously alongside the military were what were known as the Arrow Riders, who some people refer to as the Mongol Postal Service. So they're an extremely uh, efficient messenger corps that the Khan establishes to carry missives and military orders, etc., across his lands. So the Postal Service is actually extremely prestigious because it's really dangerous to be in the Postal Service. Um, and a man could serve as a messenger in lieu of serving in the military if he desired. And again, this is not a sign of cowardice. Like, imagine your job being to ride by yourself across, like, some of the most hostile, dangerous country on Earth. Yep. Basically just constantly as your job. Like, it, it was, it, you know, bandits, wild animals, weather... Um, whatever. There's a million reasons why it's it's super brave to do this. So it's not like a, a cop-out if you decide to be a messenger. And a lot of people, like, say you were a soldier and you got wounded, you know, but you're still, you can still ride, you're still courageous, but you just, you can't fight anymore, you might become a messenger. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, the citizenry were expected to establish way stations with fresh horses and provisions approximately every 20 miles throughout the empire, especially along the main trade routes. Uh, and through this interconnect- interconnected series of stations, the decrees of the Khan are sent, and they're they're spread really effectively. 
Um, the Mongols also utilized really innovative communication methods for shorter distance com uh, communication. So if yeah. you don't necessarily need to send a rider, uh, they had whistling arrows, which you can look up. Those are really cool. You guys have probably heard of those. Um, arrows with like little ivory heads or, or sometimes metal heads that are carved in such a way that they make specific sounds when they're fired up into the air. Um, and some of those are really, really neat. Uh, smoke signals. And then they also developed this like fairly set codified series of arm gestures, which oh. you could use sort of like a like a long distance sign language to communicate military maneuvers, but also just to say like, hey, like, you know, we're, there's an enemy pursuing me, whatever. Yeah. Some, if you had to communicate further than shouting distance, um, yep. you could learn this this set of arm gestures. Very nice. Uh, there'll be more about legal developments in the Empire, but I feel like we've talked about a lot of the major points here, and I feel like this is like a good spot to stop. Um, we're coming up on the hour mark, and I don't necessarily want to get too deep in the weeds here. So any like other major developments that come up or changes to these laws, we'll mention later on in the narrative. Um, but I did want to end the episode with something a little more temporal. Um, something a little more, you know, concrete and real, another little story um, about a character that we mentioned last time that now kind of makes his true intentions known. And yeah. uh, we're going to see what happens. Reveals his power level. He does. Um, and, and we're going to find out what happens to the shaman, Teb Tengri.
So if you've been listening to the series thus far, you probably remember a few mentions, at least in the last episode, to a particularly influential shaman known as Teb Tengri. Uh, he's a psychophantic religious seer uh, of the Khan's own Tengri faith, uh, who gains great favor with the Khan in a relatively short period of time by professing yep. to have these amazing prophecies regarding the Khan's ascent to universal power. Now, whether or not the Khan believed that this guy had magic powers or not, by all accounts, he was a believer in, in you know, animism and, and, and tengrism, so he might have. Um, but regardless, he also understood that, that these kinds of prophecies could be really useful for a ruler, uh, yeah. even one who doesn't base his law in spiritual authority. There's nothing wrong with having the most influential shaman in the, in the horde telling everybody, hey, this guy, he's fucking divine. This guy it rules. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, so he lets he lets Ted Tengri stick around and starts to kind of like give him his favor, his obvious favor. Mm-hmm. So we've mentioned that the Khan is always a little mistrustful of his own family, um, and so keeping their power in check uh, was in many ways one of his great successes. However, it also leaves this sort of odd power vacuum for someone like Ted Tengri to exploit because the Khan is not always like propping up his own brothers, putting them in every position of power, there's room for people that have this sort of chutzpah to come in and try to yep. take those positions. So it began in earnest when the Khan appointed this shaman to oversee the estates of his mother, Holun, and her youngest brother, I'm sorry, and his youngest brother, Temuge, yep. her youngest son. So I mentioned that he, he, most of his family members, he puts someone in charge, basically, of like overseeing their holdings, even though they are yep. given men and and whatever like holun herself is given half of a two men five thousand men so she's got her own little private (laughs) army but someone else is kind of really in charge and at this point that becomes teb tengri so temuge as the youngest brother to the khan is referred to as ochigen temugen ochigen uh which means prince of the hearth and so he's in charge of caring for his mother would be in charge of caring for their father if he was still alive um, oh. And could expect to inherit her estate when she passed. So it's sort of like opposite of primogeniture. The youngest son in Mongol society would stay with the family and would directly inherit their stuff um, as oh. a reward for caring for them. Whereas the older brothers would be expected to go out and kind of make their own their own way. So he was supposed to inherit her things. Now this this idea, this inheritance from Holun, this is something that the scheming Teb Tengri felt like he could exploit. So knowing that the Khan was not one to leap the defense of his own kin, he starts kind of putting his own plans in motion here. Yep. So Teb Tengri famously has six brothers, right? Yep. And together they form this sort of new, growing, powerful coalition in the burgeoning nation, bolstered by the supernatural powers claimed by Teb Tengri, who I don't think yep. is the oldest brother. He might be, but he's, he's the most important brother. Mm-hmm. So this sort of seven-man coalition gang... They start testing the waters, and they're going to see how much they can get away with and how much sway they really have with the Khan. Yeah. So first, they actually don't go for Temuge. They ambush uh, Genghis Khan's other brother, Kasar, who you probably remember, and they beat the shit out of him in the street over some professed slight. They jump him, and, and yeah. all seven of them just kick the crap out of him. Now, Kasar is known as a great fighter, and he famously is the guy who snapped the back of Booty the Wrestler in a, in a you know, maybe a slightly rigged wrestling match, but he was known as a very good wrestler, one of the strongest men in, in, in the horde. But seven against one is, is not good odds. And so Kasar got his ass beat, and he appeals to his brother for aid uh, after this great insult. So he comes in, drops to his knees, and basically begs his brother. He's like, yo, like, I don't know what's up with your boy, Teb Tengri, but, like, he and his brothers just, like, jumped me and beat the shit out of me in the street. So, like, what are we going to do about it? And the Khan is just sort of like, 
what do you mean? Like, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't do anything. And the, the con is like, I don't know, man. I trust Ted Tengri. Uh, you must have done something because he doesn't just make a habit of beating up my brothers in the street. So I don't think yeah. he would have done it unless he had a reason. And Kassar is like, what? And basically, like, breaks into tears of shame and is like, you know what? Fuck this, man. And, like, storms out and refuses to talk to the con for days. And eventually they're kind of reconciled, but not for long. Yeah. Huh. Ted Tengri sees this and he's like, oh, yeah. We can work with this. I'm in. Yeah, I'm, I'm in. in. I'm, right we're now, in, boys. Okay. Yeah. So uh, he begins whispering to the con in a very Grima worm tongue esque way, in my mind. Yeah. That he's having these conflicting dreams. Ooh. So some of his dreams, he sees the great Genghis Khan ruling the universe. But in others, it's Kassar who's in charge. And he's like, I, I can't reconcile these prophecies. He's like, I don't know. I think you better act soon before Kassar does something and makes himself the new great Khan. And so. Ooh. Genghis Khan takes his advice, and he has Kassar arrested, stripped literally of his clothes and figuratively of his rank, and he keeps him under guard in his own gear until the accusations can be assessed. Now, very quickly, uh, their mother, Holun, uh, who's, you know, mom to all the Borjigan boys, <clears throat> she hears of this, and despite her old age, she lives about a day away, she hitches up her camel. That's as the story goes. She has a, a pure white camel, and she hitches it to her cart, and she undertakes the day-long journey to the royal camp. She's already not a huge fan of Teb Tengri, since he's been made her her, her keeper, basically. Yep. Uh, and she's getting older. She's probably in her late 50s, early 60s, which is really old on the Mongol step. And so she's upset, and, and she's like, oh, my God, like, they just beat up my son. And my other yeah. son's not doing anything about it. And so I can just see her... Like muttering to herself, like getting like, give my fucking, I'll, I'll show them, I'll show them. Grab, grab Genghis <laughs> by the ear, right? Like, Which is basically what she does. So, uh, um, she's just. I just think it's so funny. Her son, fucking Genghis Khan, <laughs> is yeah. about to like get an earful from his fucking old angry mom. Yeah. Um, and so he's startled the next day when his like feisty, enraged old mother storms into the gear. She's spouting all kinds of invective and begins to untie Kassar and she puts his sash back on, which remember we talked about is like a symbol of manhood and puts his yeah. hat back on because a man would always have a hat on. Yeah. And then she sits down, plops down in front of the con, angry, and she opens up her fucking blouse and pulls her titties out. <laughs> she just dumps her tits out. Literally dumps them. And so according to the secret history, they're so droopy with age and feeding five children that even when she's holding them in her hand, they droop out of her hands and touch her knees. <laughs> and she says, she says, you see these? Yeah. I fed you and your brothers with these titties. Yeah. What the hell, man? You ought to be ashamed of yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And so yeah. Q, the most powerful man in, in, in step history, being dressed down by his old mom with her titties hanging out. And he's just yeah. sitting there kind of like, okay, mom. Like, I, I hear you. I hear you. Okay. So famously, she repeats a lot of clothes on, mom. Yeah. Can, we put, can we put the boobies away? Yeah. I understand. <laughs> I remember. I know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> So she, in the in the Mongol secret history, she intentionally repeats a lot of her previous monologue that she had given to Temujin when he had killed his older brother Begter, i.e., yeah. you know, you're an animal, you're chewing at your own umbilical cord and eating your afterbirth, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Gross stuff. Um, and so largely to calm his own mother down, he's not entirely convinced, but he also respects his mother. And so he, he frees Kassar and he gives him some of his freedoms back. He doesn't fully restore him to his power because he is still suspicious of him after what uh teb tengri said but he he gives him a little bit of his his stuff back and says all right you happy mom okay bye yes bye mom so holun harumphs she storms out 
She rides home, huh. and she fucking dies. What? Yeah, she's like, as the story goes, she dies shortly after this. She got so worked up, so oh. upset, was under so much stress, she drops dead. And that's where she falls out of our narrative. And so that probably freaked the con out a little bit, you know? He's like, oh, jeez, oh. maybe this is, uh, okay. Mom was pretty upset. Yep. Whatever, and, you know, <laughs> moves on. Um, but Teb Tengri is, is basically just fucking coming his pants with excitement. He's like, oh, yeah. my God, I'm about to take these whole, this whole fucking thing. I am coming day now. and night. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming in the gym. I'm coming when I'm with the girl. I'm coming all the time. Um, I am coming day and night. <laughs> I, it's like having sex with a woman in coming. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> so with Holland dead, uh, her estate should, as we said, should pass to Temugen, uh, the Ochigen. But the shaman figures, hey, I can pretty much do anything with this dumbass family, so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna seize the inheritance for myself. So he does. This yeah. scheming, no good, Nick. When Temuge protests, uh, Teb and his brothers, they surround him in the street, and they basically force him to kneel down and beg the shaman's fucking bare-naked ass for forgiveness. I'll, I'll admit, it's not explicitly said that the ass was naked, but he does have to, to kneel down behind his backside and apologize to his ass and beg for forgiveness. And in my Jeez, mind... Can, dude, can you imagine... It's better if it's a bear like, Yeah, just apologize. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's better if it's his bare, dirty, fucking 13th century unwashed asshole. Yeah. So Temuge obviously is upset about this. And at this point, other people are starting to talk. They're just like, look, like, I get it, Genghis Khan. Like, you, you know, whatever, suspicious of your brothers and shit. But, like, buddy, this is bad. Like, you Dude, need Tab to... Tab Tengri is making, is making your brother apologize to his open asshole. To his ass, his dirty butthole. <laughs> dude, like, he, they beat up your you other brother. you can see stink lines coming off of his ass. <laughs> yeah, dude, exactly. <laughs> you can see a shimmer in the air, like heat off yeah. a hot road. <laughs> and so, he fucking, they're starting to say, because, you know, we've established, the family yeah. is the most important thing in Mongol society. And at a certain point, yeah. people, like, they can only tolerate so much, and they're just like, yo, like, he needs to do something about this, because, like, those are yeah. his brothers. Like, I don't care what anybody says, like, he can't let... This fucking yeah. shaman do his even brothers like that. Even if your like brothers that. are like, scheming against Even you. though the guy knows magic. Like, how much yeah. magic can you know? I mean, this is Genghis Khan. Like, are you a man or are you going to just, like, let this guy shit on your family like this? Yeah. But truthfully, I mean, he's at this point, he's literally inventing a country. So, like, yeah. he's a little distracted. And he's always mistrusted his family because childhood, you know, he had a traumatic yeah. childhood. Yeah. Um, so it's not until childhood his wife. Trauma, yep. <laughs> a lot of childhood trauma. Yeah. It's not until his wife, Burte. Uh, who's basically the only person in his family that he, like, truly, like, just loves and trusts. We've established that, like, yeah. at least the official narrative, and he, you know, it's not that, it, he's a Mongol warlord. He fucks other ladies, but, like, he yeah. loves his wife. He's, like, a, yeah, he yeah. thinks she's the shit. She's the bee's knees. Yeah. And so she comes to him, and he begins to see the situation for what it actually is. So Borte points out how obviously alarming it is that this coalition of seven strong brothers, again, like, having ties of brotherhood in Mongol society is a big deal, and, like, they're expected to pool their resources. If they're all individually powerful together, they could put together a really legitimate, you know, opposition force here. And he should be a little alarmed that these guys are so willing to just, like, blatantly fuck with his own family. And she's like, even if you don't and trust your brothers... farting in your brother's face, dude. dude. right? Bare ass. Your kid, your kid's got dude. fucking pink eye. Yeah, he's you know got what fucking I mean? pink eye from this shit, dude. And at this point, you know, Temuge is at least in his late 30s. Like, it's not like he's some little kid. Like, they're making a grown-ass yeah. man fucking kiss their booty holes. Yeah. And so, she's like, look, I get it. You're not always sure about your brothers, but, like, what about your sons? 
What do you think he's gonna? If he can do this to your brothers, what do you think he's gonna do once you're dead? You think yeah. Ted Tengri is just gonna like, you know, bow to Jochi or Chagatai and not fuck with them? Like, of course he is. You know what I mean? He's too afraid to do anything to you, but he's clearly not too afraid of you to do anything to anyone around you that you're supposed to care about. Yeah. And she starts to get through to him, and she's the last straws, and she compares it to the Jamuka thing. She's like, yeah. is this just going to be like Jamuka again? You know what I mean? You're just going to let this guy get so close to you, you can do whatever the fuck he wants, and then what? You're going to just have to fucking kill him and risk the whole thing? Yeah. And so he's like, all right. She says, you better handle this shit. <laughs> so he does. He handles yeah. it. So he, he, he summons Teb Tengri and his six idiot brothers and their father, a guy named Monglik. <laughs> That's a, another banger of a another name. Another great name, Monglik, yeah. um, <laughs> to court. It's probably Monglik, but whatever, yeah. Monglik. And uh, they arrive at the Khan, uh, his yurt, and they enter the yurt. Uh, and when they get in there, the Khan is seated, you know, on his little throne, I don't know. And yeah. Temuge, his youngest brother, is standing there next to him, arms crossed, probably with a real satisfied look on his face. And as yeah. soon as Teb Tengri sits down, the Khan's like, hey, come in, sit down. Yeah. So Teb Tengri and his brothers sit, and immediately Tem Temuge walks right over and grabs him by the collar, which is the traditional sign that he's challenging him to a wrestling match. Wrestling's a big deal still in, in, in Mongolia. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the Khan speaks up, and he's like, oh, you guys want to wrestle? Well, if you guys are going to wrestle, you better take it outside. I don't yeah. want anybody messing up. This is I got a nice little thing going in here, okay? I don't want anybody messing up my furniture. I got this new vase. I got from China over here. Just take it outside. Yeah. And so Ted Tengri's like, all right, like, <laughs> I'll fight this little bitch. I already made you sniff my ass. Like, I'll, yeah. fucking, I'll fight <laughs> I'll make you. you sniff my ass in front of the con. Yeah, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude. All right. Like, if you want that smoke, let's do it. Yeah. And so, um, however, if I were Ted Tengri and I had an even cursory memory of the whole Buri the Wrestler escapade, uh, yeah. I would be shitting absolute missiles right now. <laughs> I would have been shitting the second I walked into the car. Oh, yeah. Yurt and saw his and brother fucking, skin. And saw Temuge right there. I would have just been like, oh, boy. <laughs> I'm about to get Buri the Wrestler. So Probably shouldn't have made his brother sniff my ass. Yeah, maybe the ass <laughs> thing was that, that. Hey, that was the line. We found the line. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nasty, unwashed 13th century butthole. Yeah. Just yeah. fuming in his brother's face. <laughs> Hot booty fumes. Uh <laughs> So as soon as they get out the door, there's a bunch of other guys out there waiting. They just grab Teb yeah. Tengri. They hold him. They snap his spine. They drop Jeez. him in the street. The Khan steps out, looks at him, has people. They erect a little tent around his body. And then everyone just fucking dips. And they just leave him there so they can't see him. They can't hear him. And they just let yeah. him die alone in the dust. Uh, no blood, oh. no mess, no foul. And that is the end of Teb Tengri. <laughs> so he went too far. And, yeah. uh, you know. Genghis Khan had his fucking back broken, and he died a paralyzed, horrible death uh, yeah. out in the dust. Genghis Unable... Khan had Teptengri's back broken. Yes. Yeah. Did I not make that clear? No, just the way that you said it, te uh, uh, Genghis Khan had his back broken. Sounds like Genghis Khan broke his back. Okay, should I should yeah. I retake the thing? No, no, no. Okay, as long as it's not like narratively unclear. Yeah. So yeah, so Teptengri has his, his spine snapped, and uh, yeah. you know, he, he had it too good for too long, my man. Um, so, yeah, and so the Genghis Khan looks at him, he's like, hey, sorry, buddy, you could have had a pretty good life, I obviously liked you, but, uh, you know, enough's enough, so. Should have farted in the wind like everybody else. Yeah, dude, should have. <laughs> hey, pal, it's like I always say, should have held those farts. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and this also serves a message to everybody. Obviously, Teb Tengri's brothers just all had to sit and watch their brother get his back snapped. I'm sure Temuge and, and the Khan are both looking at them just like... So you, I mean, you guys get it though, right? Like you see, yeah. the, okay. Do we need to? Cool. Do we need to no add worries. a second one yeah, to yeah, yeah. The, the mix? Or? So we're gonna keep the asses in the pants. Is that? Yeah, okay. yeah. 
cool got it no one else has to die today so, you know, yeah. killed him in front of his own dad, his, like, elderly father. He's, like, watching yeah. his son. And he's like, you don't anybody try to help him, because <laughs> you know how this goes. So we're all going to leave him there. I'm right? fine snapping seven more spines today. Yeah, I got the... I got... Listen, we could do it. <laughs> Wasn't planning on doing it. We could do it. We well, could man. we could make this an eight-for-one an eight special. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the story kind of serves as a parable. So the Khan learned uh, that he, he obviously needs to have limits to his mistrust of his family. Uh, yeah. And he also, you know keeps a healthy uh, mistrust of religious leaders and realizes that you can't let them yeah. influence your politics. But also, the fact that he basically just killed the strongest wizard in the realm uh, convinces a lot of people that he himself must have very strong magics. And yeah. so, to this day, uh, Genghis Khan is still revered by uh, many Mongolians uh, culturally as, as a great shaman, uh, because he was able to best Teb Tengri. So, I don't know, you know, whatever. It is what it is. So, in summary, uh, this episode, you know, it was it was a lot of legal reforms. Um, yep. <clears throat> he basically invents the law and solidifies his legal authority over the peoples he has recently conquered. Yep. Uh, he also identifies, finally, and eliminates the last real sort of viable threat to his authority, the scheming shaman Teb Tengri. Yep. And so if his goal has, has basically merely been the solidification and establishment of, like, a relatively powerful, like, regional steppe nation, yeah, he could have just dusted his hands off and called it a day. And he would probably still be, you know, a blip on the radar of history. People would probably still remember Genghis Khan. But he's, he's got to do, do more. He wants more. So wants concurrent more. to all of this stuff, you know, it sounds like he's done nothing militarily for, you know, five years or whatever. Um, and truthfully, there haven't been any major campaigns, but he's been sending little excursions out into what we now know as Siberia, dealing with yep. the forest tribes there who his people were distant relatives of. He's gained hostages, marriage alliances, lots, like thousands of new men for his army. He's also gone over to like towards the Korean peninsula, had the same thing happen. He's made inroads down with the Uyghurs. Obviously, he's adopted their script, but now he's yep. kind of communicating with them, getting more allies there. And he's starting to think like, all right. Everybody keeps talking about how rich China is and how rich the Jin Empire north of China is. Yeah. And we get some of that stuff in trade and in raids, but he's like, what if, like, what if we just had China? <laughs> like, <laughs> what if that was just mine? Not yeah. just that, but I keep hearing that there's all these, like, really rich city-states, like, out in, like, the Muslim lands out to the west, like Baghdad and Samarkand. And he's like, I don't know, <laughs> man. This was all pretty easy. And I've got all these men, and we've got all this, you know, organization now. It's like, why don't we... And there's booty and riches to be had. And you know he's a booty hound. Yeah. He's like, I, I've had a little taste. I think I want more. Yeah. And so, he's still got some good years left in him. It's time to happen. Yep. So next week, or next episode of this series, we're going to explore... Uh, it's basically just going to be military shit for a while from here on out because yeah. Genghis Khan is going to embark on the conquests that really make him globally famous when he and his Mongol horde explode out of the Mongolian steppe and just start racking up dubs against basically everyone. Like, and, yeah. and the whole world is sort of shocked because like all these regional powers are like, Oh, these barbarians are destroyed, conquered, yeah. enslaved, massacred. Like, it's just, it's really like... He's going to go on a world tour. And yeah. uh, and so we're excited. We hope that you will stick around and come along for it. But this concludes uh, part five of our series on the Mongols. And, uh, yeah, 
thanks for listening. Thank you for listening, dear listeners. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was it. I, 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 what'd you think? That was great. Yeah, I man. really liked the Ted Tengri part. That was good. Yeah, I, I figured I, I couldn't just like do a, like a boring legal episode, especially after yeah. like how badass the last like two episodes were with like melodrama. Yeah. I was like, all right, I gotta include something to yeah. like keep the action going. So um, yeah, Ted Tengri met his fucking match and got his back snapped, yeah. and uh, we're happy for that, folks. Nobody's nobody's missing Ted Tengri. Yeah, Czar Nicholas did not learn the lesson of history here. Yeah. With yep. uh, Rasputin. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, no religious psychophants allowed. Yeah. All right, well... They will, they will, uh, they'll do weird shit, like the, uh, make yeah. your brother sniff their ass or fuck your wife. Yeah. In yep. the Rasputin part. Yeah. And luckily, you know, that's one of the other the other things to take away from this is that, like, uh, Borte, Genghis Khan's wife, is ride or die. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? She's the real deal, so... Yep. She had his back on that one. For yeah, sure. sure did. All right, cool. Well, uh... We will be back. I'm already working on the next installment of this, so I don't know yep. if it'll be my next episode, but pretty soon. We'll have that out, you know, maybe in the yep. next month or so. And I know Evan's got some cool stuff in the works. So yep. we will be back. I think I might do an episode about... There's been a lot of plane shenanigans coming up yep. uh, lately in the news. A lot of stuff with the airlines and uh, uh. some... some some diarrhea fun and stuff like that so i've been kind and of you know, with yeah you know you know left on red likes the diarrhea slam yeah you know we do diarrhea so, life <laughs> um yeah we add a certain diarrhea element to the pod that uh the fans of the pod don't really love but i actually i think they might no no i, I know i know yeah, I, 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 think, think too. I think you i think you lot are sickos the, yeah. that like the the filthy filthy talk yeah we're we're a bunch of poop <laughs> Poop, poop boys and poop, yeah. poop gals and poop. Yeah, I, I've heard from multiple tells. people how much they liked uh, my uh, norovirus story. Well, bona fide Barfarama. It was, it was. <laughs> All right, uh, so yeah. let's call it, I guess, and we yeah. will see you guys next time for another episode yeah. of Left Unread. Um, as always, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your, yeah. tell your boss. Don't tell my boss. I don't really know. Yeah, I want them listening to this uh but yeah we will see you guys soon and we'll be back with more mongols before too long yep. All right. bye Peace.